good to be here this morning. Uh, it's interesting that Stephen mentioned the piano. There was something that came alive in my heart when you started playing. So thank you. Still kind of feeling that. It's very beautiful. But we do want to continue in the spirit of worship. All of us are worshiping in different ways. And so my hope is that as we um, explore God's word this morning, that we do so in that same spirit of worship. Well, it's a real privilege for our family to be back here again after four years. Uh, the first day we came in seeing the, this building being used for the Ukrainians coming through the door, the service that was provided for them. It was just such a blessing to us. Obviously, Ukraine and Russia being uh, uh, places very dear to our hearts and seeing this place as an oasis for them was, was really, really wonderful. Well, today is Pentecost Sunday. I've been told there's no pressure, but it's also Ruth Giesner's birthday. I don't know if Ruth <laughs> is here today. I know she'd been in the hospital, but I heard she was out. Happy birthday to Ruth. And then there's also something going on with a lot of flags and a big party. And so um, there's, there's a lot happening today. Actually, as a Canadian, it's, it's kind of neat. We didn't plan to be here, especially for this, but it is neat to be here to celebrate our queen as well. So we're going to see how we can weave all of these threads together. As we'll see, it's actually not a stretch at all to connect the themes of Pentecost, power and authority with royalty and kingdom. I wonder if God knew what he was doing in tying this, uh, this, uh, a number of things together for this Sunday. So as we think about Pentecost, right, and we recall the Spirit of God coming in power on his people, it might be tempting for us to think of this as the birthplace of something new, almost as though God were launching his plan B for the world, right? Plan A hadn't quite worked out, and so now he's going to do something new. And while no doubt this is a watershed moment in the history of the church uh, it's really the, the beginning of God's church. There's something special happening here. It's interesting to note how the writers of the New Testament, and Luke, especially in Acts, he goes to great lengths to emphasize that this event fits logically within the rest of the story of God. The writers want us to see the event of Pentecost in the biggest frame possible, the frame of God's big, big story. In a real way, it's, it's just a continuation of what Jesus has already been doing. When Jesus speaks about reframing God's big eternal story for people, he uses the language of kingdom. He's used the idea of kingdom. He speaks about it more than 150 times throughout the Gospels. And so throughout the Gospels and Acts, it's like we're provided with these hyperlinks that we're to click on, different words and stories and phrases and parables that will sometimes take us forward into the future, but more often they land up taking us back to God's original intent. They help us to connect the dots. Now personally, I grew up with an understanding of God's story that was essentially two acts. It was the act of sin uh, on one hand and the act of redemption. I saw God's story within those two acts. of sin in Revelation 20. 
guilty in the lake of fire, right? So it was sin to hell with Jesus in the middle providing an escape route. That was the way I understood. That was my frame for God's story. My functional Bible, or the Bible that I actually read, was missing the first two chapters of God's story, Genesis 1 and 2, and the final two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22. And if we miss these, what I've come to realize is that we miss the bigger arc of God's kingdom story. Now, there have been many moments, many conversations that I've had over the years that have challenged my thinking every time on reflection, widening my frame, increasing my frame of understanding of how God is at work in the world. One of these stories is the story of Esther, a hairdresser from uh, a country near Egypt. She owned a small hairdressing company, and uh, a couple of years ago, she landed up moving her business to a, another location in her country. Uh, this, it was actually a, a city with no known followers of Christ uh, in it. And, um, uh, but Esther loved being a beautician. She was an amazing hairdresser. She worked long hours. Soon she'd found a clientele of women who were coming to her. They would open up about their lives. And she, in turn, would open up a little bit about her faith and what gave her purpose in life and a little bit about Jesus. Well, one day, one of the regulars, one of the, the women who had come in many times, came to Esther and said, uh, she said, uh, Esther, uh, if I don't get pregnant, my uh, husband is going to take another wife. Do you think that your Jesus cares? Does he care enough to help me get pregnant? And so Esther prayed with this woman right there in, in, the, in the beauty salon. And about a month later, the woman came back and said, Esther, you won't believe it. I'm expecting and she said, I've also got three other women outside who want you to pray for them. <laughs> and so Esther did. And a couple of these women landed up becoming pregnant. And about two years ago, a couple of families, these women and a few of their family members, decided to follow Jesus. And because of that, a church was born in this place. In fact, one of the families, and the entire extended family, was just baptized a short time ago. Well, this story just didn't fit with my frame, right? Here was Esther. She hadn't trained at a Bible college. She hadn't uh, gone out as a missionary. She would never have thought of herself as a missionary. And yet here was the power of God clearly evident in and through her life. Here was the kingdom of God coming through her within the context of her everyday life and work. This was a moment of reframing for me. Another one was a conversation that I had with a, a missions leader in the Middle East a couple of years ago. He had his PhD in missions. He'd lived there for more than 40 years. And um, I, I had a chance to interview him, and he said something that shocked me. He said, Jonathan, the, the um, Filipino workers who live in the Arabian Peninsula have done more for the spread of the gospel, more for the kingdom of God, than all the other missionaries put together. I thought, how can this be? This didn't fit my frame, right? Because here were a people who had moved largely for economic reasons, now living and working in the businesses and the hospitals and the palaces of this wealthy nation. And yet, as I've had conversations over the last few years, I've come to see that behind the scenes in quiet and courageous ways, they were praying and living lives that spoke of a king. And slowly they were turning the hearts 
of a generation, but another moment of reframe where my frame got bigger and bigger and I began to realize that God's work wasn't confined to this small little box that I had put it in. There have been many other moments like these that have caused me to ask, what else have I missed? As Jesus talks about this glorious idea of a kingdom, what is actually going on? What is he referencing? And so this has taken me on uh, what I feel is a bit of an archaeological dig over the last couple of years, going back to some of the earliest stories, in fact, right back to the beginning. So uh, that's what we want to do today. We want to go back to this creation account. Now, if I had asked you, I've already given, tipped you off, but if I were to ask you, where uh, do you think the idea of kingdom first comes up in God's story? So where do we find royal kingdom authority language? As we click on these, these times when Jesus talks about the kingdom, when we, we click on this phrase, these phrases within the story of Pentecost, where do we first find some of these words and ideas coming up? Now, it's easy, of course, to, to, to locate uh, the idea, the concept of kingdom, for example, in David's story, or maybe even going back to, to Joseph or to Abraham. But read with me here on the very first page of God's story. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. Underline that, circle that, highlight that. We're going to come back to that in a second. Over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the setting of a garden in Genesis 1 and 2 invites us to enter this world of flourishing goodness. There's beauty and, and hope and, and dignity and peace and fruitfulness. And it's like we're invited to experience something here that I think should awaken in us this sense of uh, a wonder and longing and even desire because this is the world that you and I were created for. This is the world as it was meant to be. Now, what doesn't shock us anymore because we've read this story so many times, but it would have shocked any early Middle Eastern reader is that as the pinnacle or the final act of his creation, right? This is the final act of God's creation. As the final act, God doesn't create a slave. He creates something called a human. And he says, this human is made in my image. Right? So think about the context into which Moses is writing this. Right? The idea of image of God, or in Hebrew, Salem Elohim, was actually a well-known concept in the ancient Near East. Surrounding cultures like the Egyptians, they spoke of Pharaoh as Amun-Ra. You might be familiar with Ra, who was the sun god, the highest god of the Egyptians. Amun means image. So the Pharaoh was known as the image of God. Is this working for me now? I think it is. Okay, there we go. Thank you. Um, Amun-Ra, the image of God. So the Pharaoh was called the image of God. He was thought to be divine. He was the mediator between the gods and the humans. And so think of what this meant. If the Pharaoh was the, the mediator, the image of God, what it meant was that everybody else was not. Everybody else was essentially cheap slave labor. 
And so this is the, the worldview that's permeating the ancient world into which Moses is writing these provocative and subversive words. Think of the readers, or actually probably the listeners, of when this was first read out. Think of the Israelites standing in the desert. Moses, who was the likely author of this text, right? Moses is standing there and he's reading to these people who have been what? They've been slaves for centuries hearing about Amun-Ra, the one made in the image of God. And here is Moses speaking to them and saying, no, each one of you is made in the image of God. Each one of you carry a royal bloodline. And it's unbelievable as it must have sounded to them. Each one of you is made to represent the almighty creator. Can you imagine the reorientation of thinking for these people who have been slaves for centuries? And then he goes on, he says, not only, or not only are you made in the image of God, but so that, and the Hebrew here is apparently emphatic, so that they may rule. So made in the image of God, royal language, so that they may rule, royal language. So this, right here, right in the very, very beginning, is the first snapshot of God's kingdom. This is where he sets up his whole big idea. I love this definition of kingdom, very simple. Ah, there's a picture of Amun-Ra, I missed him. That was the, uh, the, uh, the Pharaoh's, and here's Moses reading to the people. So this definition of kingdom, God's rule through God's people over God's place. So every time you hear Jesus talking about kingdom, this is what he's hyperlinking back to. This is God's rule, but through his people over a very specific, tangible place. So the themes of kingdom and authority don't start with Jesus. They don't even start with the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts. They start right here in the heart of the Trinity who gets together and says, let's create humans, let's make them like us, let's fill them with our authority, and let's have them co-rule. Let's have them rule on our behalf. I, it's hard to, to emphasize how different this was from anything else happening in the world or has happened in the history of religion, in the history of the world. And so what takes place then, millennia later uh, at Pentecost, is God is letting us know that he has never given up on his plan A. His people were created royal. They were created to carry authority. They were created as emissaries of their sovereign. So the coming of the Holy Spirit is in perfect alignment with what God's original plan was all about. But we miss it if we don't reflect on the power of what's being set in motion here in Genesis. Now, of course, we know there was a rebellion against that original plan. Humanity decided they didn't want to rule, or at least not on God's terms. They wanted to rule on their own terms. And the rest of Genesis in the Old Testament are the tragic tales and the broken pieces of what happens as a result over and over again. But redemption then, you see, and the forgiveness of sins, the coming of Jesus, so much more than being an escape route or a ticket to heaven. Now, of course, eternal life is part of this equation, but so much more than that. 
It was, a, it was a moment of us. It was the means by which we are restored to our role as God's representatives on earth. We're not simply destined for another place. We are to be God's people here and now. And in fact, this is very much the same role that we're going to have throughout all eternity. I, I, I don't know if you've ever caught this before, but I grew up hearing in Sunday school and youth and I, I, really the, the whole idea of what we're going to be doing in heaven. I heard a lot about singing and, and, and music, uh, and I sure hope there's a lot of that in eternity. But in Revelation 22.5, we see God's story coming full circle. This beautiful phrase where we read that God's intention for his people will remain the same even into eternity. They, God's people, will reign forever and ever. So somehow, in some capacity, we don't know what this is going to look like, but we will continue to do forever, brothers and sisters, what God has always created us to do, what we are filled with the Holy Spirit to do today, which is representing God with authority by ruling on his behalf. So this idea of image-bearing humans who are carrying God's authority, ruling on his behalf, is the first kingdom picture. I want us to, I want us to center our idea of kingdom right here in this earliest story. This also means it's at the heart of the enemy's attack. I recently came across the story of Bergen-Belsen, a World War II camp that became an extermination center when Joseph Kramer, a.k.a. the Beast of Belsen, showed up. Actually, Anne Frank and her sister spent some time there. Well, Kramer's solution to dysentery and typhus was to simply stop feeding the prisoners. He said, death cures everything, and bodies began piling up. British troops were the first to arrive, and these war-hardened soldiers, they saw uh, the sights in front of them. They would sink to their knees and, and vomit and weep. The Allies spent the next few weeks bulldozing bodies into mass graves and scrubbing down survivors. Still, 500 a day were dying. And then, somebody sent lipstick. Have you ever heard this story? It's a crazy story. Somebody sent lipstick. Lots of lipstick. Enough for every woman in the camp. The troops were flabbergasted. Why on earth would anyone send lipstick? Here's what British Lieutenant Colonel Gonin wrote in his diary. A very large quantity of lipstick arrived. This was not at all what we men wanted. We were screaming for hundreds and thousands of other things, and I don't know who asked for lipstick. I wish so much I could discover who did it. It was the action of genius. Sheer, unadulterated brilliance. I believe nothing did more for these internees than the lipstick. He goes on how at last someone had made, especially these women, individuals again. They were no longer merely numbers tattooed on their arms. Someone had recognized them as humans worthy of dignity. And because of that, he writes, so many more of them lived. You know what? Through the centuries, this continues to be a central battleground. Our identity as image bearers who carry authority. The enemy hates this idea. He hates this idea. Think of it, slavery, trafficking, ethnic cleansing, racism, cruelty, subjugation of every kind is at the heart of his attack. 
He goes after this. It makes sense because this is the centerpiece of God's kingdom idea. The idea that God wants to rule through his people. The enemy will do anything to undermine and to attack this basic idea. So this is our identity, image bearers created to represent God on the earth. But Genesis doesn't just leave us here. Uh, Ruling can still feel pretty abstract. Um, We don't really use the language of ruling anymore. When someone asks you how your week went, you probably don't talk about ruling over your management meeting or your PowerPoint or your studies or your kids or uh, any other um, thing that you've been involved in that way. So what does it mean? Well, Genesis 2 takes us there. It's actually a bit of a whiplash. If you move directly from Genesis 1, which is a 40,000-foot level concept, high level, right down to ground level, and begins answering the question, what does ruling look like from 9.30 to 11 in the morning? Like, practically, right? Now, there's a lot of different things going on in Genesis 2, and we're only going to pick out one small theme But I want us to start in verse 5. So um, verse 5 is interesting because it's the first time that attention is introduced in all of Scripture. This is the first time we hear of something not existing or something lacking. Uh, And here's what it says. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. It's a very different lens on creation than the typical picture of the garden that we'll see if maybe we search for Garden of Eden on Google Images. Here are actually a couple of those images, some of the more popular paintings uh, that uh, come along with the Garden of Eden. Uh, If you look at these, it's interesting to note some of the the, um, consistencies across each one of these. Humans don't seem to be doing a whole lot. seem to be pretty passive. Uh, Creation is already flourishing. There's very little to be done, right? Also, there's almost always a shout out to the fall. In these, actually, I think it's actually just this one, but almost always a serpent or or, uh, the fruit, um, something to do with the fall. The implications are, and these are some of the pictures that have shaped our thinking from an early age, right? So the implications are that humans get dropped into this pretty much fully functioning world and it's really hard to work out their purpose. Is it to, uh, to hang out, to enjoy? Um, and we also get the subtle implication that God's story starts with the fall. It starts with sin. That's where it really begins. Almost as though Genesis 1 and 2 have very little of importance to tell us. But they do have something of incredible importance because here's where it gets interesting. So after this tension is introduced, God then works to resolve that tension. He says, there's no one to work the garden. There's no flourishing. And then God creates the trees. Then he creates the minerals in that strange verse in parentheses in, in, I think, verse 12, where he says there's gold there and onyx there and aromatic resin. It's like he's giving them clues to a treasure hunt, telling them, I've put stuff in the hills, in the mountains. Go and find it. Uh, And then water. So trees, minerals, water. God provides the natural resources. And then in verse 15, we have the climax of God resolving this tension. Verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the, the Adam, the human, and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. 
hear how different translations try and capture the breadth of these two Hebrew words. Cultivate it and keep it. Work it and watch over it. Farm it and take care of it. Till it and guard it. Work the soil and take care of the garden. The main idea here is, in English, the closest we can get is cultivation. It's actually the same root word from which we get uh, culture. Uh, And that's no mistake. Cultivation was essentially the shaping of culture, the making of culture for the glory of God. So this is the world as it was meant to be, but not as the world it was meant to be left. What kingdom ruling looked like in this early story was humans, God's people, taking the raw materials of creation and beginning to fashion the good world that God had intended. They were made to build. They were made to create. They were made to shape society and build families and fill the earth. That was meant to lead to flourishing on every level, peace and justice and goodness and fruitfulness and dignity and beauty and wholeness, shalom in every place. The garden was meant to be the template It was meant to be the place where God's rule through God's people over God's place would be on full display. It was meant to be the big screen where God would headline, this is what I want for my world. My people ruling on my behalf, cultivating my kingdom flourishing in every place. And then God tells him to go and do that everywhere. He says, I don't just want this to happen in this one corner of the region called Eden. I want this to happen on every hill and every valley, on every beach. I want you to go and take this to the entire world. So the Great Commission, by the way, doesn't start in Matthew 28. It begins right here in the heart of God in the very earliest story. Now, we're probably all familiar with the fact that, unfortunately, centuries ago, someone sold the church and Christians on the false notion that life can be understood in terms of two arenas, the sacred and the secular, right? Sacred places are church buildings, sacred events are baptisms and funerals and worship services, sacred people are preachers or missionaries, right? And then you've got the balance of life, which was declared secular, So farms and stores and schools were secular places. Surgery and manufacturing and accounting and raising children and driving, all these things are secular activities. Some writers have recently named this sacred-secular divide. They've called it the SSD syndrome. I like that, SSD. It sounds like a disease. They called it this to highlight that this is something Uh, that we pick up. It is a disease that we pick up in a thousand different ways, including the language that we use. We talk about some people being in full-time ministry as though any of us actually have the option of being in part-time ministry to our creator, right? We talk about things like missions or calling, which begins to create this divide and set some things apart as more holy than others. That was never God's intent. And what I find so fascinating is in this story of Pentecost is the people are amazed. And do you remember what they're amazed at? That here was God's Holy Spirit showing up in these everyday men and women, filling them with power. All of this was happening outside of the structures of the church or the tabernacle, the synagogue, right? And over the next centuries, the good news of the kingdom would travel to the farthest reaches of the empire's 
through the lives of thousands of more ordinary men and women, artisans, soldiers, farmers, merchants, who were present in the communities that they scattered to. They, they loved their neighbors. They did good work that blessed their communities. They started schools and hospitals. They shaped financial structures. They cared for creation. They launched scientific revolutions. They started social welfare system. They transformed the arts. The world began to take notice. You read some of the pagan authors and, and how they'll talk about the Christians in society, caring for the poor, doing good, as they cultivated thousands of expressions of kingdom. And then as people encountered Jesus through those expressions, they would walk with people to understand more about that Jesus. You and I are part of that same chain. I think we still struggle with SSD syndrome today, by the way. Uh, it's still very prevalent. It's easy for us to believe that God has created some people as more special than others. The Amun Ra's. In a sense, that idea hasn't left us. That there are special ones who carry the image of God. There are certain events or places that are more holy than others. I believe what Genesis 1 and 2 will not let us forget is that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. There is no such thing as secular. Right. God wants to reclaim every square inch of his creation back to himself. So whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever God has put deep in your heart, you can live as a signpost to the kingdom of God, whether it's typing memos or painting houses or hiring people or selling widgets or stocking shelves or engineering bridges or washing clothes, you are to cultivate the garden of your life. I really wish that someone had been there in the earlier days of my life. I, under, I understood that I really wanted to go into medicine, but I understood, I thought I had a choice that I had to choose the secular world of medicine or go into ministry, which was being a missionary. That was the highest kind of calling. What a false choice. I wish someone had been there to tell me, no, go, follow medicine. Go and be the best doctor you can be and then go take the love of God into any and every part of the world that he leads you to. So we were made for this, folks. We were created as royalty, a salem Elohim. This is your identity. You are the image of God. Your birthright was to co-rule with God. You carry the authority of God into the spaces of your everyday life. Carefully shaped, you're a masterpiece. God has carefully designed you in such a way that you reflect him to the world in a way that no other image bearer can reflect him to the world. You are uniquely designed for this. You are on mission from God from the moment you get up in the morning. So, where might God be prompting you to cultivate a patch of kingdom flourishing in your life? Where has God's, God's kingdom yet not been fully experienced or seen? What are the resources he's given you, the experience, the gifting, the skill sets, the finances, and how does that connect to the needs around you, the brokenness in the world? What are the things that your heart is broken for? 
Where does dignity need to be restored or hope need to be rekindled or goodness need to be reimagined? The coming of God's spirit at Pentecost is a reminder that God is relentless. He is relentlessly pursuing his original intent for you and me. And he's not going to let go of it. His intent that his kingdom would come, that it would come in all of us, and that it would come in every part of our lives. May we go from here filled up and living as agents of that kingdom with a renewed sense of hope and authority. Amen. 